Welcome everyone to episode 40 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernick and my special guest this week is once again Jason Ramos. So we're going to pick up from where we left off last week. You know, before we talked about Jason's early career and just getting through drill school to be a smoke jumper, now we're going to actually talk about his smoke jumping career and everything that followed afterwards. So writing a book about it and also starting his own business in which he's reviewing all these different items related to the wildland fire world and saying if it's good or bad and also offering up suggestions on how to make things better for his fellow wildland firefighters. So without further ado, let's bring Jason in. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the 25 Live. This is uh, Jason Ramos part two. So I can actually tell you good afternoon, kind sir. Yes, good afternoon to you. I'm glad to be <laughs> back on. <laughs> we're, we're, we're both now in the afternoon. So so where we left off last week, you just went through the, you know, the six-week academy to be a smoke jumper. So now, if you will, talk to me about that first time doing a, I mean, you get a, you actually get a call. You're, you're legit. You pass. You're, you're good to go. And you get that call. How does, how does that, this whole thing go down? Uh, it's pretty... It's pretty surreal, and I'll give you the quick story. So, you know, I applied for, I was getting, I was always told, hey, man, past 25, 26, you're getting old. You know, you're probably not going to make it. And so at the time, I was right, 25, and you're applying and applying. And one morning, you know, my mom, it was my off-season. I stayed with my parents. I love my parents. So I lived uh, my off-season in Riverside, and I'd spend half that time in Mexico living spearfishing. So... She bangs on my door. She says, Jason, smoke jumpers are on the phone, right? Because she was already versed at it, right? They'd call early in the morning, different time zones, and she knew I was applying. I get up, you know, half asleep, go in the office, my dad's office, and answer the phone. I thought it was just another interest call, what we call, what I call it, just seeing, you know, who you are, what you're doing. They're just crossing the T's and dotting their I's. And the call was by a jumper, that, a mentor of mine. Uh, he's retired now, and the call was going pretty long. I had to take my um, daughter to school at the time, you know, drop her, take her to drive her to school. And I remember saying, sir, I, I got to go. I got to take my daughter to, to school. And he says, do you want a job or not? I was like, huh? It's like, I'm calling you for a job. Do you want a job or not? Yes, sir. You know, I, mean, I was just, my jaw dropped. I couldn't believe it. Right, and I'm looking at the time. I got to get my daughter to school. I could, sir. I got to. Yes. Can I call you back? Took my daughter to school. My brain was going a million miles a minute. You know, I'm in an old 1974 van and taking her to school and come back and call them back. And I remember put on my PT clothes and just running as fast as I can for my normal PT. And I went out. That's the time I hurt my leg, but I don't know. Just it was so pumped up, right? It's like, wow. This is going to happen, maybe, or at least I made it to the phone call and I got offered. And I was pumped. I just ran and ran and ran that day. I didn't do a bunch of miles, but I ran, I swam, I, I was just freaked out, right? And and then you start your training. Uh, one of my guys that works for LA City now, he was my cabman way back in Riverside County. I'm very proud of him today. He's a veteran LA City firefighter. I'm just so proud of the guy. He was a wrestler good friends. We're still friends to this day. And he would PT and just push him. He was a fast runner, faster than me. The guy was doing sub 
Uh, he was, I believe, the day we went out run. He did. He ran a five something mile, just a sub six. And this is hilly terrain, not even flat. The guy was a savage. He was running so fast, it looked like he was going to fall on his face and knock his teeth out. And I couldn't keep up with him. I did a six-minute something, and I was dying, right? <laughs> I wasn't the fat. I was a sprinter, but not a long distance. A mile to me was a long distance. So he got me on a program, and we'd just run. He'd come and motivate me, and we'd run and run and run and run. And, um, and then you show up again back to that first day. You go through all the, the training, and it, it's just every day. It doesn't stop, and they remind you. Every single day again, you might not be here tomorrow. So what I could remember is when the, we're showing up for roll call after we're doing all our training. Ours lasted a little bit longer because some folks are four weeks, some are six, depending on weather, right? If it rains for two days, your training's extended another two days. So I remember showing up for roll call one morning and saying uh, our training's complete. And you look at all your rookie called RBs and RSs, rookie bros and rookie sisters. You're like, What? It's done? Like, we're going to be put on the list? Meaning that you're going to go to a fire as a rookie smoke jumper. And I remember that morning, you know, they give you some handshakes and uh, they sign you on the list, uh, usually with an older smoke jumper. And you go out in PT that morning. I remember we all went out running together and I remember jump the senior jumpers yelling at us, you know, you're rookies now. Break it up. And you know, everyone, one guy, I kind of tripped. My other buddy kind of tripped. We all ran different ways, right? We didn't have to run in a group anymore. It was the weirdest feeling, right? You spend your career running as a crew. And in smoke numbers, you're trained to do both, but you're, um, you might be working by yourself. So that was a weird thing. And then it just keeps going. Training doesn't end. Just because you're now your rookie smoker doesn't end. You're still jumping every two weeks most of the time proficiency jumps you're getting critiqued after every jump you're learning how to pack your gear better so it doesn't dig in your back um, it just doesn't end doesn't end it ends when you retire <laughs> nice how does that again um that first alarm that first real holy shit you're going to a fire you're jumping out of plane to get there. Yep. So you get a we get during my as a rookie, we had a lot of called dry runs, kind of like getting a, a medical aid or a structure fire, right? False alarm, right? You're pumped up, you sure. go and you, you turn around. So my first uh, couple of calls were dry runs. I remember our first one, you know, it was the real deal. You're remember, this is all repetition. Repetition, repetition. You are nervous, your adrenaline's up, but if you couldn't deal with that right those emotions whatever you want to call it you don't become a smoke jumper if you can't function you don't become a smoke jumper so that's what all that training is about so when the first call comes down yeah you're nervous you're pumped but you're doing everything because the trainers are watching you right there's there's protocol you're doing a spotter check he's making sure all your gears together your capos are connected you're mentally prepared you're not right if you're if you're checked out you're not boarding the plane and all that happens before you get to that point, right? So remember being very nervous, right? But doing your things, boarding the plane. We we're on a twin otter, very bumpy flight, very bumpy. Guys were, I know I was turning green. And um, it was, I believe, like a tractor trailer, an excavator caught fire. And 
we were throwing streamer streamers our wind indicators to make sure we can land safely in the intended jump spot they're 20 foot pieces of crepe paper with a little packet of sand very high tech but weighted to mimic an actual smoke jumper uh, falling out at 1500 feet so they're wind indicators they tell us what the wind's doing and that spotter helps us get to that jump spot and I remember them throwing many streamers and the streamers as I like to say it they were blowing to you know Asia they were going to long distance and they finally called that jump off so we had a couple of dry runs right and your your adrenaline spiking your back you're up and down and you get tired a few times doing that and then I remember the call finally came in for a reinforcement reinforcement means there's a fire there's other firefighters on the ground and you're coming to reinforce them meaning they need help so when you get when that came in it's like holy this is really the real real deal and it was in uh oregon so region six so long flight right hour and something and i remember looking i was uh one of the jumpers up uh, closest to the pilot so back in the list i was like number seven or i could even been number eight or six or whatever but back of the boat as we call it i call it and i remember looking at the cockpit where the pots are falling like whoa this is a big fire and um, all the jumpers are getting their gear ready, right? They're doing their stuff. The spotters usually can yell, you know, five minutes out or just depends on who the spotter is. And you're just going through all your training again. You're like, wow, this is happening. This is <laughs> holy, you know. Um, and the first jumpers go, right? Second jumpers go every time the plane does an orbit, two jumpers jump out. And as you move up, like, whoa. Right, all your training is in place. You're not nervous. You're doing your training. You're again repetition. If you couldn't do that, you wouldn't make the program. And I remember hooking up, and I remember I was a second jumper out of my stick. A stick is two jumpers, or you could have three, you know, three person stick. But I was a second jumper, and I remember the spotter saying, you know, um, watch out for the fire. And I remember you could feel some of the heat. It was a pretty good fire at 1,500 feet. You can see the smoke and smell the smoke fly through the smoke and i remember the trainer being very specific do not land in the fire and uh it gets your time to go they tell you you're at 1500 feet have you seen streamers uh, to the spot you say you, you nod yes you give a thumbs up whatever you're doing at that point um you're protecting your reserve and that next command is get ready and that means you get position in the door and then you're going to get a tap on the leg. That means you, you know, you exit the plane. Um, second person, you the first person jumps. You get in the door and you get another slap. So it's very surreal, right? You get out. It's very loud. Now it's very quiet. You're talking to your jump partner. You land, making sure you don't land in the fire. Um, I remember the the jump meadow was uh, full of you know pumice rock. From this lava, you know, uh, volcano, volcano area, Oregon, you know, and certain states still have a lot of volcanic uh, rock out there, and and it looked just like a big dry meadow to me. And I remember the guy saying, "It's a scab." I was like, "What's a scab?" And then you find out as you get closer, right? So those are rocks. <laughs> um, so you land, make sure you're in one piece. You get up, you do all your protocols, uh, let your jump partner know you're okay. Strip all your gear off. And now you're ready to fight fire. And I remember one of the jumpers come over and gave me a smoke jumper hat. I don't wear hats, but it was it it was a 
um, accomplishment. You made your first jump, rookie. Here you go. Um, I gave the hat to my dad. Who knows where that's at now? I'm sure sitting at someone owns someone else owns it now. So long story short, that was my first fire, and it was a long fire. Um, I remember falling asleep standing up next to a tree all night digging line spots everywhere spot fires it was just a long fire and it was a good hard fire um so that was my first fire it was very interesting how how many times do you think you jumped before that actual first one that actually i don't want to say count of that first fire uh you have to have 15 proficiency jumps past proficiency jumps a successful so I know I had 15, right? And I had, I had some practice jumps there. So I know it was probably under 20. I actually have my jump log I would look, but it's probably, I know it was my fire was probably under 20. Uh, could be over. But yeah, not many, right? You're, you're a rookie, man. And it's, um, it's just a huge, you know, a huge accomplishment, a huge amount of respect, at least for me. Some jumpers come through, and again, this isn't talking smack on other folks, but some come through and I think they miss that part in their rookie training because every base does their own. Uh, ours is the birthplace. We're very proficient on the history, and, and it means something to our base. So our instructors really make sure you understand the history um, of the base. So that was me. So it it meant something to me, and um, every jumper out there is different. Um I know it means the first fire is going to, to all jumpers is going to mean something very important. So, so Jason, you set me up perfectly. That's a great segue. You mentioned history, and and if you don't mind, I'd love for you to touch on the triple nickels. Yeah, the triple nickels were uh, Afro Americans that were not allowed to fight for our country in World War II. Long story short, um, you know, I grew up in La Puente, West Covina. Uh, not definitely not the bad parts, but I grew up in LA County, right? It wasn't uncommon to hear gunshots. We used to count how many gunshots you could hear on Friday nights. That was a game we used to play. Um, that's not that's not something to laugh at, right? <laughs> Usually those bullets are not going somewhere happy. Uh, so long story short, the triple nickels um, were not allowed to fight for our country, and uh, when the draft came in, and well, let's back up here. We'll give a quick, make this, just, just do this right. So 1939 was a birthplace of smoke jumping. Uh, in the early 30s, they knew we were using the parachute for our military. <clears throat> our pilots had them in case they got shot of aircraft, but it wasn't a proven thing yet. It was crazy. Uh, Adolf Hitler was using parachutes in the late 30s to invade other countries and, uh, and do very bad things. We didn't have airborne. We didn't have any of that stuff in the United States. So long story short, the foresters knew this parachute was a tool. How could we use it? Uh, a gentleman by the name of David Godwin uh, started researching it. And it, it came to the Forest Service. They thought of this idea, but there was nowhere to fall back to they found a company called the eagle parachute company at a lancaster pennsylvania some of the listeners might ding me for how they say it i was instructed one day how to see lancaster pennsylvania but i could never do it justice so forgive me um so these folks were doing it for fun they were the the stunt guys right the barnstormers back then they were jumping for fun they were grabbing surplus parachutes made out of silk modifying them 
and doing them for fun. So these were like the Red Bull guys back then. They did a a jump for during the holidays, and the the story goes that he jumped up in Santa Claus regalia. And uh, right, remember back then papers? There's no YouTube. <laughs> There's it's telegrams and and that kind of stuff, right? And that paperwork got back, and the Forest Service found out about this company, basically, is how the story goes. Again, there was no internet. So the Eagle Parachute Company came to Winthrop, Washington with their jumpers. And they started a program to show the Forest Service that you can jump out of a plane with this thing called the parachute, float down the ground, and go to work. Whether it's fires, it could be a search and rescue, so on and so on. So that's how the program started. Uh, we know at that time, right, the war is starting to happen, 39, 40. The president of the United States at the time knew we were going to war. He assigned Major General William C. Lee, which they call in the military the godfather of airborne, to research the parachute because we're going to war. He found the smoke jumpers. We had two test bases at the time, one in Washington and one in Montana. The reason why we had the test base in Montana because that's where the Johnson's Flying Service contract planes came from. So, you know, why use that state? So that's where those folks um, had their other smoke jumpers at. Major General William C. Lee came down with a few of his um, officers, how you'd say that, or his, his folks. And that's the birth of your airborne in the military. They went back to Fort Benning and then you, all those listeners out there, you can Google this stuff and read up on it. It's very interesting. So we're getting to the triple nickels. So at that time they started their airborne and, uh, you know, we had the United States was a very different place, right? We had segregation. We had things that just weren't right. These folks are getting drafted to go to war airborne and the triple nickels were not allowed. So, they took place of smoke jumpers as the jumpers got drafted and other folks that became airborne, they became smoke jumpers for the United States. At that time, the Japanese were sending over um, incendiary devices by balloon, and these balloons were starting fires. Um, during that time, it wasn't the height of fire season, but... Um, there is documentation of a family that were hurt and killed that some folks found an old bomb and it exploded. So the Triple Nickels, their assignment, uh, I believe the code name was, uh, I don't want to disrespect by giving a wrong name, but I have to look it up. I want to say it's Firefly, but that might have been the name of the plane. Uh, but I believe their project was called Firefly. Um, and those gentlemen became smoke jumpers. Uh, one of them were killed uh, in a letdown procedure. He landed in a tree and what we call burned out and was killed. So I got to speak. I was very honored to speak with one of the triple nickel airborne uh, gentlemen years ago. And just such a huge honor to hear his voice over the phone. And as we hung up the phone, you know, I said, sir, thank you so much for talking with me and just an honor. And he yelled airborne and he slammed down that phone. <laughs> So I didn't have a, I didn't even have a chance. Right? I didn't know I'm not a military guy. Airborne, you know, so uh, pretty intense. I got to meet a couple of them over the phone and 
what a huge, you know, honor and respect that these folks couldn't fight for our country, but they became smoke jumpers and uh, did something very hard, not easy at all. And there's a in, in my book, the first edition. If someone has it out, there's actually a typo. It says they went to Europe and they were sent back. They never got to Europe. Um, and there's some great videos on YouTube. Uh, one of them has a background of um, a Rage Against the Machine plan music and it's an awesome little clip for all the listeners out there just youtube triple nickels and rage against the machine and get you pumped up nice i was supposed to see them in july and now it's next july so i got you uh, thanks a lot corona (laughs) yeah that's right right (laughs) (laughs) yeah we're all dealing with it in different ways but yeah the triple nickels where we actually have some shirts um made at our base you know every base makes different designs and just what a huge amount of history and they have their own hangar you know the president gave them a i believe that, i can't remember where their hangers at i believe it's in oregon but we actually have if you ever once the virus hopefully subsides a bit if we get back to tours all smoke timber bases give tours but we actually have one of their um frames plaques that they made when they were at our base it's a big parachute made out of wood with pictures of the pilots in the plane and some of the uh, triple nickels that were at our base. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, a part of history that is not many people know about at all. No, no, I had an, until I read your book. In fact, I had no idea that besides Pearl Harbor, that the Japanese were able to do any attacks on us soil. Yeah, it's pretty, um, right. Early forms of terrorism, right? If you, if you really think about it, um, sending, hot air balloons with incendiary devices. That's, right, as we say, that's crazy talk. Um, and they were doing it. Uh, and we still, they're still unaccounted for, there's probably balloons still out there, a few. I mean, we don't know how many they sent. And that's how a, a family, um, I'm not sure if it was a family, but someone did get hurt. I got to refresh my memory on that. But there's a there's actually some books out there that go through the history of that. Well, uh, did you say something along the lines too of they found one that didn't explode, and they used the plutonium out of there for one of the atomic bombs? Is that right? No, that wasn't from me. Um, they found a family. I know a family or a couple or someone found it. It exploded and it killed them. You can look that up. Um, huh. As far as I know, that's factual. And on the other part, I never heard that. That's uh, that's not my book. I know that part. Um, I don't know where I heard it. Disregard it, listeners. Yeah, no, no worries. But I'm, hey, there's there's I'm stuff out it. there's stuff out there that right gets missed. So that that's what research is, right? You got to research stuff. But we know for a fact that there's um there's stuff still could be out there, right? We know that did happen, and that's where the triple nickels. That was their mission to combat those balloons that were sent over from japan that that's that part's a fact um so they did a, a great job and just again what's a huge honor and um i'll have to find that video and send it to you and that little clip it's pretty intense it was awesome no thank you for sharing that that's definitely interesting and you know until i read your book i, I had no idea so very cool stuff um going to your actual fires, you know, the, the smoke jumping and some of the fires you went to. Did you have any close calls? 
Any any pucker moments? Uh, yeah, I'm not gonna lie. There's a lot. You know, I mean, you're trained to do a crazy job. Every jump's somewhat of a pucker. Um, and we have a kind of a saying, at least when I was active jumping, it's like if you <laughs> if you think this is easy jump, you should be. That's that means it's gonna be a hard one. So don't ever let your guard down. Um, you know, some guys say, hey, if you don't feel those butterflies anymore, maybe it's time to not jump anymore because um, as soon as you let your guard down, Murphy's Law is always on time. So, yeah, it's there's always a pucker factor. And back when I was jumping active, you know, even for my trainers, it, you know, you break it up in segments. It's get out of the plane, have a good exit. That's your first part. Um, your first mission, second mission's good parachute. It's open, no malfunctions. That's the second. Third is good uh, manipulation to the ground uh, with your jump partner. That's the third. Fourth is landing in one piece. That mission is over. Now you're on the ground. Now comes the fire. So that's the way I was taught by some the old trainers, some of the famous guys out there, um, Big Daddy and all these, the Blaze. I mean, those are things they taught me. So, Jason, you break it up, man. It's step by step. Right, you can't look at next week when you're at Monday. I mean, you can plan for it, but we're Monday. We're not looking at the next Monday. Today's Monday. <laughs> um, so that's what I remember. So every jump was a little bit. Yeah, there's always a little bit of a pucker. Some a little bit more. Right, with the ones with cliffs, and spotters saying, "Hey, don't go long. Don't go short. Those are cliffs." <laughs> right. Those are. Whew. I remember as a rookie jumping up at North Star. They actually don't jump there anymore. And it's just a bummer, right? Traditions change a little bit. And <clears throat> anyways, very tight spot. Looking at the Cascade Mountains. Very tight turnaround for the planes, right? And I remember the spotter saying, enjoy, look at the scenery, yelling at me. I'm like, thinking in my mind, this guy's a freaking, what are you talking about? Look at the damn scenery. There's nothing but trees down there. The jump spot was very small. And your odds of treeing up are very high. That means landing on top of a tree. So, um, yeah, they're all a little bit pucker factor. Some a little bit more than less. Nice. So, at some point, I mean, you're doing this for a few years now, and you get a, a kind of random voicemail on your phone. And it's something about a book. Could you kind of go into that voicemail and where it leads you? <laughs> Yeah, that was a funny day. So I was ready to jump. Well, was, that was 2012, 13. So I was jumping for a little bit. Um, at least I knew my name as a jumper still. I still consider myself a rookie smoke jumper, right? I'm not one of those guys. Oh, I've done it all. I'm just, again. And for those guys out there, I'm not making funny, but that's just them. And this is just me. So I was jumping for a little bit. And it goes in my voicemail. And I was dating a, a new lady at the time and she was very well read and educated and whatnot and and I remember eating dinner and she's I remember saying, Do you know a Harper something? And she says Harper Collins. I said, Yeah, that's it. She says, What? I said, Well they called me. And I'm just eating my food and watching like to watch funny comedian stuff when I'm eating dinner, right? And we're and she's like she, she might even hit pause or something or turn the music off or whatever we're doing that for that dinner music or uh, movie or whatnot. And I was like, someone heart, she's give me your phone. So I'm just eating and we played the message, right? Cell phones are still not the best at the time. So 
she says that's she researched the gentleman and he happened to be the same editor that did uh, American Sniper and very various other bestsellers and I'm like why is this guy calling me you know so I remember I believe I text one of my mentors a very successful business owner I might even called him he said Jason I, I did I did I called him and he said Jason send me the information I don't mean to burst your bubble but someone's probably playing a joke on you because Harper Collins one of the leading publishers don't call cold call people and offer them a book deal and I was like oh that's who's messing with me man right he says send me the information so I send the information I believe that's where he texts me he says call these people back ASAP there was some French involved in there so I was on duty so I'm sure it was um, I'm very strict at that I don't like doing work stuff I'm on duty so I know I called him probably when I was done that day or whatnot on uh, my lunch break uh, my nose on my lunch break so I was in my van and met this gentleman over the phone and he offered me a book deal and I was like a pop-up book <laughs> he didn't like that he's like no this is serious Mr. Ramos and um, he threw the deal off there and I said sir there's other jumpers out there that are PhDs doctors there's been Apollo 14 was an astronaut there's military PJs there's I'm just a snot-nosed motorcycle skateboarding kid from Southern California and I remember saying Jason I've researched you and I like you and I still said no and he kind of laughed what do you mean no and I was at work right half hour lunch and I said sir tell you what can we just date for a while and see and he laughed I laughed and he says deal to see if we like each other and that conversation went on till the end of my season I didn't take the book deal until I was not working for the agency. Um, and the rest is history. I'm still on the ride. It's a crazy ride. He's changed my life um, in a way I can't even explain. Um, absolutely nuts. As my dad said, always, son, make your mark. Make a difference. And during that time, when I didn't want to take the book deal, I'm friends with John McClain. He's the son of Norman McClain, a big mentor of mine. Um, I consider him family. He's, he, he's there to kick me in the butt when I need it. And he definitely has done that in the past. And I remember him early in the morning talking to me on the phone, telling me, um, take the dance, you know, effing deal, Jason. This is your opportunity as you you know, with all your, tell me about your dad and all the things and take the deal. And by the way, I I know Peter. I wrote a book for him too. So I'm like, oh my, so... I took the deal and it went on for months and months of telling me just to relax. And I remember him telling me, you can write it on <laughs> napkins. You can write it on here. We can get you a co-author, a ghost writer. You can do it yourself. I want you just to relax for a bit. You got six months off, you know, I'm off duty and we'll be in touch. So that's how that happened. Um, and I'm so on, I'm still friends with uh, Peter today. Um, He's an amazing human being. Um, he's got an amazing wife, a sense of humor. He's never left me like all these people say, oh, you get a book deal, they're going to be horrible to you, and they're going to leave you, and they're not going to do this and do that. I've never had one such experience with HarperCollins, not one. It's been an amazing. Yeah. 
Have they bugged you for the sequel yet? No, I don't think there's going to be a. I could write a. I could write a book about the the nightmare I had about writing a book with the agency. Yeah, I could do that one, but I don't think that will be a bestseller. But you'll be amazed of when you write a book, you find out who your friends are and and who are not your friends. Yeah, I could. I could only imagine. <laughs> so, yeah. you were, you were doing smoke jumping for some years, but then you ended up hurting your back, right? Yeah, it blew out. So. In the book, fire, I believe fire 242, I should know this by heart, but I believe that's the fire. Um, they believe I had whooping cough uh, after weeks after that fire. I got, I jumped this fire. It turned into being a pretty decent fire. It was early season, but it was burning very good. The the relative humidity, the, the fuel moisture is very low. End up being, long story short, that fire actually burned till snowfall. Um. So rewinding to that, when I got on that fire about the third or fourth day, I got the craziest cough, right? I, I already, during a kid growing up in L.A. and L.A. County with smog and just having problems with my lungs, uh, when I get a cold, I always would get a chest cold. So and it was going to my lungs. So this cold, it wasn't a, there was no fluid or anything. It was just this crazy cough that didn't end. I didn't sleep. I, I mean, I kind of slept. I took naps, I guess. And I remember sleeping so away, so far away from the group. I don't like sleeping near jumpers anyway. I like to be out by my own. But I remember when the jumpers saying, hey, man, you're coughing all night. You all right? Like, you're really coughing. I said, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, I'm I'm coughing so hard. Like, I feel I'm going to blow up. My brain's going to blow up. And then it would subside during the day. And I believe by the sixth day, I got relieved. Um, the fire fires get bigger, and they go to a different called an, a different IC type management. So it went from ICT four, which I was an incident commander for four, went to a three. So that means hotshot crews and more jumpers and planes, things get bigger. So long story short, they were, I got relieved like on day six and, you know, hiked out of there to a helicopter, did all the things, got home and um, just thought it was a cold and it got worse and it got worse. And then Jen's like, I think you got whooping cough. Like, what's a whooping cough, right? And you research it and went to the doctors and they're like, yep, we think you have, you definitely have something. So that lasted pretty much for months. I coughed so hard. I would bleed out of my nose. Um, I would go to my knees because you can't breathe when you get into that episode of a whooping cough. And I already had kidney stones at this point and I, I, there was one time I was driving. I thought I was dying. I literally thought, I said, this is new. What's happening? Um, so long story short, they believe I blew up, well, helped, uh, in, uh, how do you say, injure my back. They can't confirm it. Um, but I jumped my last jump in 2013. That's when my back really just had enough, and I blew up. L4 and L5 finished the mission, but didn't know I blew that out until week, well, about a month later when I went and got an MRI. Um, one of our, our smoke jumpers that is a pararescue, he said, Jay, you know, go, you got a serious problem, dude, go check it out. You know, and jumpers were hard-headed, all firefighters, right? We're all hard-headed, and uh, especially being a jumper, it's like, ah, I'll just deal with it. It'll get better. And it wasn't. There was days I couldn't walk. I couldn't get out of bed. Um, peeing in a cup. Um, 
almost peeing on yourself, uh, literally peeing on yourself because you can't move. So yeah, serious pain, kidney stones is nothing compared to a spasm in your lower back. <laughs> now, I mean, you're still involved to this point, but it's kind of a different role, right? Yeah, so I'm literally this year, my position was filled, which is great because they needed another jumper while I was clogging up um, the system, which I get it. Um, so right now I'm kind of in a void. I'm still with the agency, but I'm not, I don't have a position. So we'll see what that is. I'm still, you know, they still put a lot of money in to me, right, with all my training and especially my forte of research and design and solutions. Uh, I have we, haven't, we haven't got there yet. That's where <laughs> I was going next. All right. <laughs> all right. Well, I so, guess yeah. it all it's all related. But you, I mean, you're looking at being, you know, a drone pilot. Yeah, I've been, well, I've been, I've been flying for 10 years and, um, I am a certified drone pilot for Okanagan County, um, a SAR team. So, but actually using those for the wildland to kind of scout things out and, and have a, probably be a lot easier to use that than, or a lot cheaper than, you know, an actual helicopter, I imagine. What's well, coming. So I'm certified, right? You have to do a lot of things through the FAA. I'm a certified, they call it part 107. So I'm a bona fide 110% certified drone pilot. Um, for the four, for the agency, I am not with them yet, but I am certified for the county I work for because I have the license. So long story short, the agencies are I've been doing it for a few years, and they're it's here. It's a great tool. Um, again, I've been flying for ten years as a hobbyist. I've designed planes. I've done some pretty cool stuff. I have a great relationship with some of these big companies now and we're doing some very cool stuff. So at some point we'll see, I got a couple years left. Um, this is my 31st year in the fire service and it'll be my 20 years in 50 in 2022. So, uh, I can't buy back my other time, but this is my 30, I could have retired, you know, a decade ago, but I don't have that time in the all in one agency. So I got to wait. So I get my 20 under one agency before I can um, take a break for a little bit. 2022 is not that far away. Nope. It's uh, July 31st. We'll see if I, I always, you know, <laughs> if people that know me out there as snapper, I, I never thought I'd live till 18. It's just from where I grew up and you read it in my book. Um, I, I'd never... I'd tell my dad that he would almost, you know, the look on his face. He's like, what do you mean, son? I was like, Ted, you know what I mean? I don't think I'll make it to 18 with all the stuff that's going on. So anyways, I made it. I'm still here and I grateful and we'll, we'll see if I make it to, uh, 2022. You never know. Right. I certainly hope you will. <laughs> Me too, man. I but that's, hope. That's, it's funny because when I tell that, there's always silence when I get interviewed. Oh, and... uh, wear your seatbelt, damn it. Yeah, well, yeah, I do. And, you know, I get a wild hair. <laughs> there's not, there's times where I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm doing triple digits on a motorcycle or I'm, I don't know. I've, yeah, I'm out there spearfishing by myself, right? In the middle of the Sea of Cortez um, with a. What? You even mentioned it in the last episode, the killer whales and the sharks and all that stuff. That seems like a whole other episode <laughs> of <laughs> yeah, just, just your your wildlife yeah. encounters. 
Yep, and I'm nowhere near. I mean, there's guys out there more, a lot more versed at interesting things, right? I'm no, I'm, I consider myself tame, but some people think I'm not. So it's like, no, you got to see my other buddies. And yeah, so I just always respect that. And that's from the old kahuna in my book. He's like, you know, hopefully I'll see you tomorrow morning, man. You know, hopefully I'll see you the next day. Hopefully we'll be here for dinner. And he always made me enjoy that lunch or that dinner or the time I'm spending with him or hanging out with that pelican or hanging out with you on a fire because we're not guaranteed to live. We're not guaranteed to be here tomorrow or five minutes from now. We're not. There's no contract saying you're going to make it till retirement or so I kind of live that once I I've met these mentors in my life and I try to make my most out of every day. Every day I do my own little AAR in my head, right? I didn't know what AAR back when I was 18, but I kind of do a little briefing in my head. Like, what did I do today? You know, did I do nothing or did I do something today? So, yeah, a little tidbit for the listeners out there. <laughs> that's, that's on the house. <laughs> yes. Well, these are all things from my dad. Man, My dad was a, he grew up from the Bronx and my dad had a lot of, great one-liners and they're all from experience and um he would tell me you're not guaranteed to be here son i'm not guaranteed to come home tomorrow i'm not guaranteed to be here for you and it would right go whoa right as i'm going down a hill on a skateboard going oh yeah <laughs> so <laughs> kind of interesting way of looking at things right it, it certainly is absolutely so you kind of mentioned it earlier. Let's get to it now. You being the gadget guy. Yeah, that was, I had many nicknames. So in, in my early years, I was called zipper. Cause if I stood sideways and stuck my tongue out, they said I was so skinny. I look like a zipper. So the, the tongue being the YKK pull tab, right? <laughs> so, um, all the guys in Riverside County, um, know me as zip. And then the Forest Service guys know me as Snapperhead or Snap. Um, so, yeah, the gadget guy, when I was very young at 17, I was always tinkering. Even my dad was. I was always trying to make something better, whether it's a bag, a skateboard, bicycle, anything. I want to modify it. <laughs> more flame, more power, whatever, right? Faster, slower. So uh, by the time, like, I believe I was 19, I was the equipment manager for my rescue squad because I was, um, I got started to drive the rescue squad and that took years of riding with the captain before he even uh, gave me that. Okay. So I was a guy that took care of all the jaws of life, the Hamachos, the made sure all the, the filters were cleaned and the po positive ventilation fans and the chainsaws. And I was the guy that liked stuff clean. So I was learning I was going, right? I didn't have a bunch of experience in these tools. I just made sure they were running right. And I became the gadget guy. Like, ask Jason. He'll probably know of a, you know, a good pair of boots or a, a good knife or a, you know, what's a good pair of sunglasses. Cause my brother was a, you know, optometrist at that time. And, um, and it grew. And my buddy always teased me. He was a ex-Marine. He was a volunteer firefighter as well. He's like, you're like the gadget guy, Jay. You're going to have like, someday you'll have like a store. We'll all come in and we'll have a great meal. That's the first thing. We'll have the great, you know, you have a part where we can cook some great meal. And then you'll have like things that no one knows what they are. 
like this special tool to do this or a a bike that does this or a so it just grew and grew and then the internet came right that to me was like the gold mine the willy wonka ticket because now it research everything um whether it's you know lip balm to the best socks best underwear so i become this gadget guy that's how that came to be very cool and then you ended up starting your own company you want to kind of touch on that because it's, yeah. it's all it's all in the same kind of lane i guess yeah it was kind of a joke again my buddy was like jay you know you're you know, I was starting to sell knives, right? <laughs> the old the old kind of thing with the guy with the trench coat with watches, right? Knives, watches, you know, come over here. I got something here for your son. And so I didn't even have a business license, right? I was just selling cool knives I would find and or get out buy them for people and like add a dollar on it. Make sure, you know, or I'd give them away free. I just buy it for someone if I liked you. And then as I became a smoke drum, I started to meet companies, right? Companies that were, um, as a smoke drum, were looking for the best gear. And you would meet these companies. And I loved cold calling people and meeting owners and CEOs and ask about their knives or their boots. And that's something I, saw, I did as a kid. For all the listeners out there that are older, the old uh, stomper trucks, toys, I would call toy stores and find the latest stomper out there to make sure to find it and beg my dad to drive me and get it so long story short i started doing knives and then one of the jumpers helped me said jay you need to start a business you got to get a business license and start making money well how do i do that and he helped me right you, you get on the internet and you make some phone calls and you get you know this number and that number and your state number and your federal tax id numbers and you get a business name and you fill out some paperwork and then lo and behold, you have a business. I'm like, whoa. And I remember, you know, I picked a name PR Inc. It's like, I'm not incorporated. You know, you learn as you go. I was like, ah, oh, that's the wrong name. I better change my name. <laughs> so, um, so you change your name, but now, you know, started off with a knife company that supported me. Uh, some of the biggest companies today that I'm, I've eaten Thanksgiving dinner with, Christmas dinner, they've been here with me since the beginning, and they've helped me to where I'm at today. If I didn't have those companies, because I didn't have a storefront, which is called Brick and Mortar, I didn't have 50000 or whatever X amount of money to buy a first order right in a warehouse. But I had all the connections. I had friends saying, Jason, we have a warehouse for you. What do we need to do to help you? And it just kept adding this piece of this puzzle every day, every week, every month. I learned more and more. They invite me to dinners and say, Jason, I want you to come down. I remember the first call to one of the biggest companies, uh, uh, which is MSR. That's um, uh, just an amazing company. People out there that are campers and backpackers, they know what MSR is. So Cascade Designs is the the parrot company, Thermarest. They own all those companies. He says, I want you to come down and have a meeting. And I said, what do I wear? He says, wear clothes. <laughs> I'd never been to a meeting, a company meeting, right? He wanted me to introduce me to the lawyers and the big guys, the players, and that they were going to figure out a way to support me and that I could offer gear because my dream was not just to offer gear to educate the person that needed the gear. If he wanted a knife, 
make sure you got the right knife. If you needed a stove, make sure you got the right stove. So that's how it all started. And they said, Jason, go do what you need to do. You're an official dealer. And I used their name as they let me. And when it's like a credit score, right? If if they know a company's supporting you, now companies were coming out of the woodworks to wanted to be part of my my dream or my what I foresee this business that I have now. And it still happens every day. It, it's every day's a new adventure. So long story short, that's how that all started. And it was very hard. Um, again, I didn't have a brick and mortar building. Uh, didn't even have a calculator, right? <laughs> how, how do I give a receipt? Um, and you learn all that stuff. You call and you ask, sir, how do we give a receipt? <laughs> well, you go buy a receipt book, Mr. Ramos and you know, three copies and you save your copies and you, every year you put them in a file and that's how it all started, man, from ground zero with, with help from amazing people. But, you know, I, I love that a lot of the stuff that you're looking at, cause it's, it's basically like you kind of get trials of, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you know, these companies give you some of their products and you basically test them out and you, you just run them through everything and you, and you, say this is good or this is bad or you know and you make recommendations based off that and you also can give them suggestions on how to make things better is that pretty accurate correct that's what we kind of grew into um when i first started it right i always wanted to seek out the best and i'd get so excited right you get a, a product that had great marketing everyone was using it and then you grabbed it and you went right to a mission with it and then it would fail and now I'm failing because I relied on this product because I thought, as my dad would call thinking and thoughting, I was relying on this product to do something, and I, I, I messed up. I failed. So now I have three phases, right? And I have a protocol, so when I get something, and when it's completely done, if my buddy or you or a guy on duty gets something referred by me, we have done our homework beyond. We have exhausted from the engineers to the CEOs, VPs, first responders, military, fire, some of the best in the world, tier one, uh, tier two, which I've been able to have honor to speak with some of these gentlemen at times and ask for their advice. And we find that recipe. So when someone gets something, we're still human, we make mistakes, but the product's good. So that's what my company does now is we do collaboration we do um, a product. If they're going to launch a new product, we'll get it for uh, many months. Our minimum is one year to bash something and make sure it works. Because if you're on a mission and your chapstick doesn't work or your lip balm, I should say, and now your lips are cracked, you start messing up a little bit. You can still function, but it's not fun. You can't laugh, right? You can't laugh. You can't tell jokes. And you're cranky. And then other people get cranky. Just because of lip balm or your underwear, right? Your underwear is giving you a crotch rot. It's a domino effect. So I've been able to mitigate that domino effect for many of my guys out there on duty. They've, I've changed their life. They call me, Jay, you changed my life. I never knew this existed. <laughs> One of the, like, cool. the the big ones you, you talk about in your book is, is the storm shelters. Yes, yeah. that's... Uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a big topic there. But long story short, on that one, for all the listeners that are firefighters, 
I'm glad you brought that up. So we'll talk firefighter here for a second. We all know what NFPA standards are, right? Our turnout jackets have them. Our helmet has a tag. Our boots, our SCBAs, all these things have an NFPA tag certified for us to use. Go look at your fire shelter. There's no NFPA tag on it. And what I mean by that is that basically the government owns, they have the patent and the design part of that shelter. So what I'm saying is that shelter has limitations, a lot of limitations. A normal campfire that we all cook our s'mores and camp hot dogs with can produce almost 2,000 greens. We've all melted glass. We've all melted tin cans. That's just your campfire. Your fire shelter can't handle that kind of temperatures. So what happens is a lot of people go out there and they think the shelter is going to be their, their true last resort. They're going to get in it and it's going to save their life. It might save your life, but for folks like um, uh, Storm King, 30 Mile, Twist River Fire, and many more. The Yarnell, right? Look at the Yarnell. Those guys all lined up, did protocol. If most people that I train and do special training um, speaking events now have a different way if they think of the fire shelter. Remember, there's Australia and Canada that don't carry fire shelters, and there's a reason why. So long story short, we're trying to now educate our firefighters because I can't, if it was FPA approved, I can make a better version years ago, just like it was done. So Jim Roth of Storm King Technologies, his brother was killed in Storm King, and that's where your new generation fire shelter came from in 2011. So for all you, again, first responders out there, captains, lieutenants, engineers, battalion chiefs, when you see a shelter that says new generation, that is not something new that is made from the last NASA projects, they're referring to 2011. So do not think that is gonna save your life for every situation. Nice, now you, when you've helped with production or not creation of uh, shields that block you out from 3000 degrees plus, correct? Well, in my company, yes. In my company, we've done some, I like to call it, with due respect, skunk works, right? Um, I like to, we have some very, very interesting gentlemen, um, PhDs, aeronautical engineers. Uh, I've even have a, had a physicist help with some projects, a guy that worked on Apollo 14 particle separator. So we have some of the best in the world helping us, and we know... Um, but with the fire shelter, I can't just go, there's a lot of road bumps because the government, it's theirs. Until the NFPA comes out with performance-based standards, then we will have a shelter that really works. But for all those folks out there now, again, just not saying that you're not making good decisions on fires now, but remember, it's, it's life and property. Did I lose you? No, no just for a second. So, uh, back to the... You just say that, what uh, the life and property. Yeah, so a lot of firefighters get confused, even me in the, in the past. It's life and property, right? Not property life. So, next time you're on a wildland fire, even a structure fire, is there live folks in there? Is there someone to save? If there isn't, right? If it's just some 
bonsai trees. I love bonsai trees, but you know, are we going to risk? There's a fine line there. If there's kids in there, heck yeah, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Um, I'm not going to speak for everyone first responder out, but that's what we do, right? We go and yank people out. That is our job. Um, so the shelter is a very interesting thing because through the years of training, every year that people are doing the refresher training, you have these folks reading out of the book and they're saying the same things. I had a, a firefighter not too long ago from one of the biggest agencies in the nation. I'm not going to say their department. They're class one. Uh, they know me and they said, Jake, tell us about this new shelter. I said, there isn't a new shelter. What do you mean? It's like, no, there's a new shelter that came out. So yeah, back in 2011, there was an updated shelter. I said, no, the new one with NASA worked on. I said, that doesn't exist. And once I briefed him, he says, why are we buying these ones for? I said, well, you have to, it's mandatory. We got to train our firefighters what battles to pick, what battles to pick. Um, if you look at the history of Australia, a fire service in Canada, they get some pretty intense fires. Those guys don't carry fire shelters. And Australia is the ones that started uh, the research way back um, in the 50s, late 50s. So, long story short, we have to carry them. We just need to know what our gear is capable of doing, just like our SCBA, right? We know when that bell goes off, right? Or, um, you know, double jacket hose or your certain nozzle or your, your foaming, what percent you're going to use on a, a vehicle fire. You got to know your gear. And our shelter is one of the, things I've noticed in my three decades that people don't really know a lot about their shelter. They don't. <laughs> they just think you pop it open and you get in and it's going to save your life. It's all about the limitations. It's about the limitations. I mean, they've definitely saved folks, uh, firefighters lives in the past. But if you think you're going to go down into this Canyon or whatnot and go, Hey, the worst thing, man, we'll go down there and we'll just get in the shelters. It's, it's kind of like a false sense of security. Yes. I hate to say that, but I have captains now and chiefs that listen to me speak, you know, late at night when they're talking off duty and they want my full attention about the topic. And they're like, Jay, that you've changed my whole way of thinking about this. How, how do we change it? I said, well, education. We have to start teaching our our captains and supervisors and all the trainers academies that this is not something that's going to work all the time for us. Every fire is different. Every, uh, you know, f direct flame impingement, um, as Jim Ross says, water, you know, fires like water, it flows in different ways. Um, that fire on 242, we had helicopter blivets that are basically big water balloons that hold water, very tough, like a hypalon material. It's a, it's a very tough textile used uh, even in inflatable boats in the ocean. So long story short, from spitting distance, we had um, some aluminum near, very heavy gauge motor aluminum that melted. In spitting distance, the blivets weren't even popped. Now, that's not interesting. I don't know what is, right? So that means we had temperatures of almost 12, well, basically 1200 degrees to melt aluminum to puddle, to, to liquid. And then we had a, a rubber hypalon textile that didn't even uh, deteriorate or even show any signs of uh, heat, direct flame impingement. So <laughs> that's, 
that's something to think about, right? And I witnessed it. I got a picture of it. And it's like, and I remember showing that to Jim Roth, a very smart gentleman in the fire world. And he says, Jason, water, fire flows like water, and you can have temperatures that even some physicists and scientists don't understand it. How you could have 200 plus degrees, 2000 plus degrees here, and within spitting distance, nothing is even harmed. Like not even a pine needle. I got pictures. We studied it with my physicist. And we're like, wow, this is interesting. <laughs> How does that work? So um, I work with a lot of PhDs out there. And um, I listen to them. They're the experts. And I, I, I love to show them that picture because they scratch their head. They're like, Jason, was this picture altered? I said, no. I was standing there. I'm the one that took it. Wow. So. Yeah, kind of an eye opener. Well, you got to keep up the good work. Um, everything you're working on, it's, it's going to ultimately save lives. Yeah, we've we've done it. I'm pretty much. I want to. Uh, someone just one of my um, partners said, Jason, we got to put up on their website. You know, some of the great projects we've um, accomplished, and one of them being the fire weather meters, Kestrel. So if you ever see anyone out there, all those firefighters out there using sing synchrometers. Please go to YouTube and just put in the search or contact me, uh, Sling Synchrometer versus Kestrel. The Kestrels are wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> you lose. <laughs> They're wrong. Um, and those numbers are very important when you're out there doing prescribed fires or checking the weather. So uh, I got the help with that project. And that video is some very smart people showing how the sling can be very off. So that was one project we helped. Then we just keep going with textiles and better pants. So if you're a wildland firefighter out there and you're wearing a certain aftermarket company um, PPE, I helped in the shadows of help design some of those um, pants and, and gear that you're wearing, whether it be helmets or uh, boots. Um, we like to work in the shadows. I'm not a gentleman to go and just um, constantly gloat on what I've done. I mean, I'm proud of it, but if you go to my website, it's kind of a little bit of a riddle. I just, I don't like constantly saying what I've done. You know, it just, it's just not me. But if you're a firefighter, I can guarantee somewhere in your firehouse, whether you're structural, firefighter now, or wildland, there's something there that I've helped design or something that actually I, I did design, <laughs> which is pretty cool. It is cool. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And it's a help. All the engineers, I'm just the the catalyst um but a huge honor you are definitely leaving the world a better place than you found it and that's what matters i'm let me I'm trying. yeah i'm trying <laughs> well, that's all you can do really you know but yeah. you're actually you're making the best out of it so let let me get you out of here because i've already taken up way too much of your time i want to do the 25 questions again but this time sure. I want to actually ask you some of them. Sure. Is that fair? It's not really fair, but it's yeah, my throw, show. It's yeah, my that's rules. Right. That's right, man. It's That's exactly it. That's it. I remember one quick thing before we get into that. I remember an owner. All you listeners have to look up uh, Rife International, one of the leading spearfishing companies. I'm just so honored to be friends with them. You can go to my Instagram and see me with an old picture of Jay Rife. And I remember... My business was first starting, I would give away cool things, you know, expensive things. I remember um, one of the owners there, she says, Jason, you can't, 
you can't keep doing that. You know, I said, well, I'm the owner. I get to do what I want. Right. She says, well, you got a point there. So <laughs> your show, your rules, man. Yeah. So you kind of, you mentioned it earlier. I'd like to know what your favorite comedian is. Ooh, <laughs> that's a lot. Um, Eddie Murphy is definitely can make me laugh. Um, that was the, my kids, right? The law point at the time Eddie moved, Eddie the, Murphy the, listening. The raw, uh, the raw delirious. Time. Yes. Listening. On, yeah. Listening on the records. Right. I remember listening on records. Um, uh, John Candy. I mean, that guy would put me in tears. You know, he's no longer here anymore, but there's a scene where, you know, John Candy was a big gentleman, right? And there's a scene, he was a cop, and he, he happened to commandeer a something. He was trying to hitchhike, and the guy in a big rig pulled over, and he says, jump on in, Slim! And my buddy was a motor cop at the time. He still is. And I, I sent him that clip, and we were both in tears. Um, so, yeah, John Candy, Chevy Chase. Um, the old the old classics. Um, Martin... Whew, the list the list goes on and on. The Seinfeld episodes is obviously is one of my um, my life is like a big Seinfeld episode. It seems like um, Seinfeld cracks me up. It just <laughs> who can't laugh at Seinfeld? If you don't like Seinfeld, we probably won't get along. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> I've got the box set. I'm with you. Yeah, that and is, I've, uh, and I've seen him live. I saw uh, Steve Martin live. I didn't, you know, which is a couple years ago with Martin Short, which is great, but it's not back in the day. The wild and crazy guy, King Tut, uh, Steve Martin. Yes, and like I mean, some of the movies were like uh, Spaceballs and and Three Amigos. I mean, I've been in planes laughing my, you know, and and Will Ferrell, right? I know a jumper that almost mimics Will Ferrell. I mean. <laughs> Whew, the list just goes on and on. Nice. So, all right, next question. And, I, and I'm curious about this because you pretty much seem like you try about everything. But what's something that you've tried that you'll never, ever, ever try again? Are we talking food or are we talking products or something that any, I can talk any, Anything, experience, food, whatever. Ooh, oh, I got to think about this one for a second. Let's see here. Um. I remember when I first tried sushi with that family, I'm talking about Rife, the Rife family, I swore I'd never try it again. I about wanted to throw up. And now I like some, uh, how do you say, some types of, of sushi. That's one. Um, caviar, recently, as a young skateboarder, wasn't even a firefighter yet, had caviar and I about threw up. It smelled like catfish bait. And I had some recently. And I couldn't believe it. It was the most decadent thing I've ever tasted in my life. One of the things. So but you're, you know, you're going. What you're saying? What you tried, and you liked. I'm asking you, what you would never try again after you, well, after you did it once. That's what it is. It was caviar, and then I tried it, and it changed. So, um, I go. I'm, I'm like 183.60 all the time. So all the things I've said I'd never do it again. It changes. So again. Um, I'd have to think about that one again. It, it, there's, I do so much stuff, man. Um, I swore, like I said, I picked caviar because I swore in my life I would never, ever in my life try it again. And I just tried it a, about a month ago, and now I love it. 
<laughs> so <laughs> caviar first, but let me come up. Hold on. Let me figure this out for you. So something I would never. Who? Um, I don't like heights. I don't mountain climb anymore. So that's a good one. I mean, I don't it just I, I don't I don't like heights. There you go. I don't like heights. Let me jump out of a plane. Oh, well, yeah. It's, yeah, it certain things. Right? Yeah, so I don't, you know, I don't, um, I know, yeah. That's all right. All right, last one here. Who would play you in a movie regarding your life? Oh, shoot. Whew. Um, you know, there's some great actors out there, right? I, I, I'm not well-versed at the big screen, but I'm pretty good. Um Uh, I've I've been told by many people, but again, I don't know, man. I don't know who would who would do it justice, right? I don't know. The guy that did it justice for my audio, which is kind of answering your question, is the guy that played in The Hunt for October, Ned Vaughn. So if you watch the movie The Hunt for October, the new person with Jonesy listening for the Russian sub, which is Sean Connery, is my voice for my book. And I went through multiple gentlemen to be able to at least get my point across in audible. So I don't know, man. I don't know who that would be. I really don't. If George Lucas was younger, if I got to meet him, I would say, I want you to play me, but because the way he thinks. Um, Ron Howard is a huge mentor of mine. Huge. I grew up watching uh, Mayberry Street. So if I could have Ron Howard do it and they can do some great make, I, I think Ron Howard's a, um, a great person, but I don't know. Nice. Nice. That'll work. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's uh, if you don't mind, if you would share with my listeners where they can actually track you down at, find you, um, your webpage, all that kind of stuff. So I'm pretty easy. I, I've learned this from another one of my mentors, uh, Greg Medford. Um, people can go research who he is, but you know he puts his direct sale on his card, so I do the same thing. People can actually Google me and find my cell number. I've had people actually call and say, is this Jason Ramos? Yeah. Are you kidding me? It's like, well, who do you expect to answer? <laughs> so uh, product research gear is my main company. Um, and with that, you can just Google Jason Ramos, Smoke Jumper Book. I have some other little websites, uh, professional fire gear. Uh, Instagram is just product research gear where we try to show people what we're doing out there with all the gear we're testing. Um, I'm not a big social media guy. I don't care about likes and uh, hashtags and and ring the bells, but um, you can definitely find me and what I'm doing. No, uh, no MySpace top eight. Nope i I actually turned off Facebook. I used to do MySpace way back when, right when I was, whoo, date internet dating, you know, the whole nine yards, man. Right, I was, and I got to talk to some famous people. I mean, from good times. Um, I should know her name by heart, but um, not Flo. Um, anyways, I'm just an Instagram now uh, guy and my website, and I tell people call me. <laughs> nice. I always thought that it was it was kind of mean. MySpace made you pick like your top eight friends, and just so you're like, you had to be so like selective and careful and all that stuff. But anyway, I did want to say something else too. If you ever thought about this, because you mentioned. Your golden ticket, you know, Charlie and Chocolate Factory. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Grandpa Joe? 
Grandpa and Joe. Grandpa um, Joe was, I mean, he's in his, bed. He yeah. can't help out his family. He can't work. He can't do anything. He's yeah. stuck in bed. All of a sudden, he gets a chance to go to Chalka Factory, and the guy's dancing. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing, right? And you're so you're a you're a connoisseur, right? <laughs> so you see these things that most people don't uh, see, right? And there's so many ways to look at that, right? Where they, we all get this. Even you know, I get a point where I just want to give up, right? I've been there. I'm not gonna lie. It's like I don't want to do anything. And we've all had that, and that's how I remember watching as a kid. It's like, was he at that point? Were they? Was he a hard worker to that point? He just gave it up, you know, because I remember my old, my kahuna, but he couldn't windsurf anymore, so he thought the world was done. He couldn't be in the ocean anymore. So he found something else. So long story short, yeah. So that's a good way of looking at it. Um, and then and then when they're inside the chocolate factory, he decides to take, you know, a sip of that little soda that lets them... Yep fly and almost disqualifies charlie from getting the ticket and getting the factory or yeah, exactly. not, he gets a ticket yeah so yeah, a little little bit of selfishness right a little bit of um a soul searching there right and i think there's there's great messages in that whole movie of right of of what i like to say right and wrong um i remember as a hell attack guy we had to make a shitter uh, a porta potty shitter excuse my french and i remember super i said you know, we're not going to just make a shitter just because it's a crapper. We're going to make the best crapper in the world. And we had limited tools in Sandia, New Mexico. And we made this most awesome porta potty. And we were actually given, you know, compliments by the FMO there. So, yeah, it's kind of how do you, which way do you think about it? If right and wrong. Like, you, do you take a drink? The I want to fly. Like, I want to fly. I don't care what it is. Just let me fly. But you now you just ruined it because he has to have that whole thing cleaned right yep and he, it's a domino effect now he could have hurt someone else right and we can get really crazy right you could have you could have given a virus to all the loompa loompas now because you just messed up their sterilization of their you know high grade stainless steel for the fizzy drink right this i love this conversation i didn't wake <laughs> up this morning thinking i was going to be able to tell everybody how i feel that uh, grandpa joe's a dick and he, and all this kind of stuff but this is this is fun that's now a good a way of ending yep i'm a willy wonka freak man you'll hear me in multiple talks always bringing up the ticket i mean what a what a life lesson from the movie and even um mayberry street with don knotts and ron howard and how those simple way of life and between right and wrong of respect and um yeah, I still watch that movie, man. It's in and Johnny Depp, right? If I could have Johnny Depp in my movie, that he would be definitely there. <laughs> I gotta tell you, and and I don't want to keep going on this, but I, I never saw it because and I had the I have and I did it on purpose. I just the first one, the original is fine. Leave it alone. It doesn't need to be you, redone. That was my you, attitude. Yep, you have you have to do it, man. Johnny Depp, he you know Johnny Depp's an interesting man, gentleman, and. I th I think he did it proud. He he did a great job. Just the sounds when he put when he's putting on his rubber gloves, just the um, his expressions. Um, he got into it, man. It is, it's good. You got to do it, man. You got to. You might not like it, but I can't. Uh, you you he. I guess I have the I guess I have the time right now. That's 
can't go do anything right now. Yeah, and you got Still. yeah, and you got it. You got to like Johnny Depp, right? It's one of those things. It's like, I like oh, I like Johnny Depp. I just I thought I like yep. Gene Wilder, and I I, I enjoy the original. <laughs> yep, I hear you, and it's um, it's a trip, man. I look at all those little nuances of how, like I said, they the sounds. It's like when Tori Amos is is singing, you hear her how she breathes, how she hits the the keys on the piano. She's a perfectionist in certain things. So I think Johnny Depp did a pretty good um, version of Willy Wonka. <laughs> nice. Well, on the Willy Wonka note, let's get out of here. Uh, <laughs> right. To all my listeners, please hit that subscribe button. Uh, please rate us five stars. Um, That's right. Don't forget to share us and, and check out Jason. Jason, again, Thank you so much for making the time. I, I know your time is limited, so I really do appreciate that. And I've I've enjoyed spending all this time with you, and I hope my listeners do too. I'm yeah, sure they will. It was great. Thank you so much for having me on. It was it was really fun. You've probably actually been one of the funnest uh, podcasts here, talking about Willy Wonka and some cool stuff. So thank you. <laughs> yes. Again, I didn't I didn't know that I was going to say Grandpa Joe's a dick today, but he is. And I'm glad. <laughs> I'm glad I've finally been able to express myself because I've been holding on to that for years. There you go. Yeah, he needed a kick. He did need a kick in the ass. I get your ass out of bed, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you, my friend. I, I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you.